Hey, thanks for being here. Um, I, like, legitimately, I wasn't, sure, I wasn't sure that the congregation could go in as much as 1030 did at noon here, and you guys were about it. That last song, come on, right? It's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, let's give it up for our worship team. Um, I, to me, that has like Broadway vibes, right? Some of those harmonies, you're like, ooh, that's Hamilton. Um, Anyway, anyway, uh, very cool. It is a campus week. That means I get to preach on kind of whatever I want. What, I mean, to be clear, I'm the one who puts all the sermon series together too. So I'm always kind of preaching on what I want to preach. But, um, but today is a day where I can say, hey, what do we need to talk about here as a campus? What do we, what do we need to lean into? And um, so, so I thought today we'd talk about the great co-mission. And um, you've heard it said, the great commission. We believe it's the great co-mission. Um, because we believe that God is with us in the midst of that. And that phrase was um, kind of labeled by a guy named Hudson Taylor, which we'll talk about in a second. But let me read it to you. Uh, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. You're familiar with this. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And we're comfortable with this text. We get it. Um, we, we hear it a lot, probably. If you come to Crosswalk, you hear it quite often. We take it pretty seriously. And like I said, it was coined by um, a gentleman by the name of Hudson Taylor, who was a missionary to China. But he didn't just coin the, the term, the Great Commission. He actually says this, the Great Commission is not an option to be considered. It is a command to be obeyed. And now, that's a lot. I understand that. Like I said, he was a missionary to China um, early on when China was, uh, you know, this vast country that was relatively misunderstood. And he noticed that there was a lot of evangelism work being done kind of on the edges of China, but he wanted to send people into deep China. And so he started his own missionary sending agency where he would take money and people from the West and send them into China. Pretty pretty phenomenal. But this phrase, right, the Great Commission is not an option to be considered. It is a command to be obeyed is a tall order, right? And, it, and this idea of the Great Commission is a source of pride for some. Yeah, we're doing that stuff. It's a source of chagrin and, and kind of guilt for a lot of other people. Am I really being involved in bringing the gospel to the nations, right, to the whole, to the whole world? I remember hearing this phrase the Great Commission when I was in seminary, when I was in graduate school, I didn't really remember hearing it before that. I'm sure there were pastors who talked about it and preached about it. I was just, you know, your typical, um, you know, high school and college student not really paying attention. So I don't want to say that any of my pastors weren't preaching about this. But, um, but when we began to hear about it in seminary, it was just like, hey, we've got to go and evangelize the world. We'll talk about that word in a second, but we have to go and evangelize and do mission to the world. And um, it was weird because they didn't really train us to do that. They were really, they just trained us to like pastor a local church. And so um, we left that evangelism and that mission work to missionaries, right? And I don't know if any of you have ever been a missionary. I was a student missionary um, by the leading of the Holy Spirit to the best waves um, in, in the Marshall Islands, actually. I, I would love to say it was a more righteous decision than that, but I really just wanted to surf for a year, and um, and we got to do some work. But it wasn't it wasn't I wasn't bringing the gospel to anybody who hadn't heard it necessarily. Um, uh, missionaries are a different breed of people, right? But this this mission, this this idea of the Great Commission, well, it kind of captured and catapulted 
much of the best of us. And, and actually, it, um, it, all throughout history, people have really grabbed a hold of this idea of, of not just being a missionary, because that has a certain connotation, but being an evangelist, going out into the world and preaching to people. Um, we actually don't use the term the Great Commission as much as we have a particular Adventist phrase that we use, and it's called um, finishing the work right? That's the phrase that you've probably heard if you grew up in the Seventh-day Adventist world, finishing the work. Now, at best, that's a really great intention. At worst, it's a misunderstanding of something that Ellen White said that essentially means that if we finish the work, that means if everybody on the planet hears the name of Jesus, then Jesus has to come. Um, Like, it's kind of a, he's on a forced timeline with that. Um, Probably not great theology, Can I say that? We have kind of used it as that, and we need to be careful with that. Like I said, it's a great intention, but we've used that term finishing the work. But I wonder if we've ever asked ourselves this question. What makes the Great Commission so great? And and before we jump into that, I think we need to actually read the whole thing. Because you know that we always quote the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. What is the first word that Matthew 19 begins with? Anybody know? We just read it like four minutes ago. It starts with therefore. Nobody starts a sentence with therefore unless there's something before, right? So let's read from um, Matthew 28, 16. It says this, Then the eleven disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. So there's eleven left. We know that Judas is no longer a part of uh, the disciples. And this was a conversation between friends, right? Jesus was telling them, so was he really telling us? I mean, he was telling them something they should do. But is he really telling us? And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some of them doubted. Now, this is a fascinating phrase. This is the thing that happens when you come in contact with the divine, right? The immediate response, and we see this all throughout Scripture, the immediate response when we come into contact with the divine is to worship. But also there were some who were doubting. This is after the resurrection, so there were some who were doubting. But it doesn't say some of them worshiped and some of them doubted. It said they all worshiped and then some still doubted. We actually believe that worship is something that we should do through our doubts. And sometimes we let the worship do the believing for us when we're really struggling with doubt. This is why we sing every single week because we know anybody, anybody, so many people who walk in here and, and us included, right? You walk in and some weeks you doubt more than you're believing. And so you need those worship songs. You need those, that, that posture of worship to do some believing for you for a little while, to, like, to, be, to be that surrogate as we sing. And sometimes that helps us with our unbelief. Anyway, um, Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and earth, right? That's the phrase that um, makes the therefore. I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, because I've got this authority, therefore, you now go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you and be sure of this. I am with you always, even until the end of the age. So we need to understand that the Great Commission is great because it starts with the finished work of Christ, right? He has done the work on the cross. He has been resurrected. And now all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. This is all authority over everything, right? All authority over plants and animals, over you and me, over the economics, over the politics, over industry, over the nations. Jesus has been given all that authority over everything. And that's why we go out into the world. And if we are being sent, 
we are being sent with Christ's authority. And now, fascinatingly, we don't talk a lot about this in our particular faith tradition, the authority in which we go out into the world, right? One of the reasons why is because we've given authority away from the local church and we've given it to a denomination, right? We have a tendency to say, hey, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. I'm a part of this thing. Great. No problem with that. But we have a tendency also to think the sending happens from the denomination, not from the local church. If you go into other churches, they'll have pictures on the wall of particular missionaries or whatever, evangelists, that they send, they support and they send. We do that through a global system of economics and a global system of sending. Nothing wrong with that. It just means that it's a little bit um, separated from where we are. But, but what we learn here is that the authority in which we go out into the world to preach and teach and baptize and disciple, the authority that we go out into the world is the authority that has been given to Christ. And it's all authority, right? All the authority in the whole universe has been given to him. This authority forms the foundation for all evangelism and all missions. <clears throat> Can we talk about the word evangelism for a minute? Um, because I think we grow up in our particular faith tradition, and we, we have a love-hate and kind of a weirded-out conversation about evangelism, right? Because we've all got the flyers. We've all had them. They've all come from our local Seventh-day Adventist church with beasts on them. And we actually affectionately call this kind of evangelism beast evangelism. That's weird. We wouldn't call it monster evangelism, but it's kind of the same thing, right? That's, that's a little bit strange that we do that. Now, we have an understanding, and, and I'm, not, I'm, not just, um, I'm not just diminishing that because there are people, there are definitely people, there may be people in this room right now who have come into faith through an evangelistic meeting, through a Daniel and Revelation seminar. You know, uh, it's a valid form, but it, um, it has made us a little weary of this whole idea of evangelism. In fact, we don't often take it personally as the idea that we're all evangelists because the church has hired professional evangelists to come hold meetings. They do that, and that's when we do evangelism. In fact, as a pastor, I can actually go get evangelism funds not to run the church, but to do a meeting specifically for evangelism. That's a little bit different. We all understand what the word evangelism means, right? The word evangelist, or the, the word for evangelist, means someone who brings the good news, right? That's all it means. It means someone who brings the good news, and we understand that good news to be the good news of the gospel. So it's not relegated to a pastor. It's not relegated to somebody who's trained to be an evangelist. It's anybody who's willing to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And we do that just so you know, in the authority that comes from God through Jesus to us. And this authority should give us confidence, right? It should give us confidence for a few things. It should give us confidence to preach. It should give us confidence to share. But it should also give us confidence to listen because one of the massive parts of evangelism is listening to what people need and what they want and how Christ can fill those holes of need that they have in their life, right? It gives us the authority to love our neighbors. That's evangelism. And if Jesus is good news, we share because we believe in this good news, right? So the authority that has come to us through Christ is authority to go out in confidence, but it is also the authority to do one thing. And I, I think I'd like, to, I'd like to change the word we're using. Rather than use the word evangelist, I wish we could use, or maybe we should use the word invitationalists. Your job, my job as an evangelist is to invite people. 
invite people into a relationship with God, invite people into a relationship with the gospel, and really invite people into a relationship with us because that's what we represent in all authority that comes from Jesus. Right? So maybe it's a less scary word when we say your job is to invite people. And where do you invite them? Well, you invite them into relationship, but you also invite them, hopefully, to a, a local church because local churches are important, and we'll get to that more later. But you have to know that this authority also puts all the results of our endeavors into God's hands. That means we don't worry about outcomes. We're the invitation. We don't have to worry about outcome as they are within the purview of God, right? We've been given that same authority to do the work, but we've also been given permission to let God be responsible for how this works. And permission is an interesting thing. You've heard me speak on this before, but when we started planting churches, one of the first questions that was asked, because we weren't planting churches in this building, we were planting churches across the country, one of the questions that was asked was, who gives you permission to do this, right? Because we belong to a denomination that has systems and this sort of thing, and like, who gives you permission to do this? And my answer was pretty simple, Jesus. Because nobody else had given me permission, so I thought that was good. And sometimes in faith, that's the right answer. Like, if you're ever in a Bible class or a Sabbath school class and you don't know the answer, just say Jesus. You should get at least half credit, right? I mean, it seems like it. That's what I did in college. Um, anyway, uh, we don't have to worry about the outcomes. And in fact, this is true from the very beginning. There's a story of Paul in, in Acts of the Apostles, chapter 18. There's a story of Paul going to Corinth. Now, Paul was going to Corinth and Paul was having some trouble. They really didn't like him there. They were persecuting him a bit. And he was pretty much ready to leave. And one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision and told him, hey, don't be afraid. Speak out. Don't be silent. He's giving him permission. He's giving him authority. Speak out. Don't be silent. And then Jesus says this, for I am with you and no one will attack you and harm you. For many people in this city belong to me. Now here's what's interesting. In Corinth at that time, there were no Christians. Paul's the one who's there evangelizing. So there's not Christians. And God comes to him and says, by the way, many people in the city belong to me. This should remind us of a couple things that give us confidence. First of all, your invitation to someone is not the first invitation they've had. Your invitation is just an echo of the prevenient or prior invitation that God has already given them in their hearts. Right? You may be enunciating it in English, but God has already been working on their hearts. There is nowhere that you go that you got there before Jesus got there. Right? He's faster than you. Right? He takes different roads. It's really important that we know this. Right? The gospel always goes before. So what we're doing is just enunciating in the language of the people what God has already been doing in someone's heart. So we can walk with confidence that you're not the first ask. Right? You're not coming out of the blue to somebody, inviting them to church. You're not, they're not like, what? That's so weird. Where they come from? My bet is if you invited 10 people to church, eight of them would say, I've been really thinking about going back to church. Thank you for inviting me. And then two will be like, no, because they don't want to come. And that's cool. And by the way, those numbers are completely made up right here, right now. So that's not, that's not a qualitative uh, statement or quantitative statement. So you know what happened after this, by the way? Paul stayed there for the next year and a half teaching the Word of God. And we know that there was a church in Corinth, right? Because we have this book to the church in Corinth called Corinthians, right? This epistle to um, the Corinthians. But we also need to understand something. We need to understand that we're going under God's authority. We need to understand that the results 
come from God. He's responsible for those. We also need to understand this. Christ's authority guarantees fruit. If the outcome is Christ, then the fruit is guaranteed because God just doesn't make things that don't grow, right? Every time he creates something, it's going to grow. Every time God is involved in a conversation, every time God is involved in a movement, every time God is involved in what it is he's asked you to do, he guarantees the outcome, the fruit. Now, it may not look the way you want it to look, And I've had to come to grips with this because as we've planted, there have been some plants that have grown like crazy. Chattanooga is a part of those. But like we tried to plant in Denver and we just couldn't get there. We couldn't make it happen. And that sort of ended up falling apart. And and there was a part of me that's like, oh, we failed. We failed. Um, I need to be careful about taking credit for what God is doing, both in success and in failure. Because sometimes God works in ways that may look like failure to us, but are certainly not to him. Right? So if that means that God wanted that to fail, not fail, that God wanted that to be put on pause because there's more work that he needed to do on others' hearts, then so be it. And when somebody says, oh yeah, I saw you try to plant that church, it failed, how do you feel about that? I'm like, great, God's on the move. God's working and we have to go where God wants us to go. Right? But we also understand this. The Great Commission is great because it includes the church. Now, remember I said I was going to talk about this. It was given to the 11, but there was an assumption that somebody else was going to need to help keep this going. Why? Because of the scope of the mission. He said to 11 guys, go into all the world, preaching to all the nations. Now, I don't know if you like word problems and math, But let's do one, shall we? Let's say 11 guys leave on donkeys from Jerusalem, right? Let's say they're going four miles an hour. I don't know how fast donkeys go. Do you? Are they faster than that? Let's give them credit. Let's say six. Literally, I have no idea. I would be scared half to death to get on donkey. But let's say six miles an hour. How long would it take those 11 men to get all through the world? Certainly longer than they had time on this earth. So there was this assumption that this work was going to have to continue somehow. How is it going to continue? The scope of the mission tells us that it needs to continue through the work of the church, right? The full scope of the Great Commission demands the work of the church, demands the liturgy, the work of the people doing what God is. Because there's a lot of different things Jesus asked us to do. In all authority, he asked us to baptize, to preach, to teach, and to disciple, right? That doesn't get done by one person. It doesn't get done by one person in a small church. It certainly doesn't get done by one person across the world or 11 guys across the world. It means that it needs to be part of the church. And the problem is we have so often, and I think this Again, from our tradition, um, we have a tendency to think mission and evangelism happens somewhere else. It doesn't happen at the local church because our denomination has taken responsibility for it. That's fine. Again, that's fine. However, I think it misses the point that every single one of us has to be engaged in that work if we're going to fulfill the work that Jesus has asked us to do in his authority, right? And you've heard me say this before. I don't believe evangelism is an event or a program. Evangelism is the orientation of the heart of the congregation, right? Because I can talk to a lot of people and it still won't be everybody that we all can speak to. It's still not everyone that if we're all engaged in the work of evangelism can come to know Jesus Christ. 
So it has to be. So it means this. Evangelism shouldn't happen just outside of the church with other organizations. It has to happen within the church, within the life and the warp and woof of the way that we live our lives in church. And if it's not, then we're missing a part. And also, we're not healthy. Because it's really easy to do church for us by us. And it's really easy for us to leave every single week and go, man, that was a great church service. Oh, I love the word. That was really great. And, and, and never reach the world for Christ, but really have a great time together every week. And that's great. But that's a club. You know, and it's a weird club. Let's just face it. It's a little bit weird. Um, so if we're going to be a healthy church, we have to be involved in the midst of evangelism all the time. Now, who do we evangelize? And there's a word that we use for this, right? A phrase. We always say we're going to evangelize the lost. All right, the lost, which is a little judgy. Don't you think? First of all, have you read scripture? There, like, there's a parable of a lamb. And what does Jesus do? What does a shepherd do? He goes and finds a lamb. In my book, as I read scripture, no one's lost when Jesus is looking for them. Right? Now, you can decide that's not something that you want. And that's a choice, not just being lost. And when I go to church planning seminars, it's always fascinating when I go to church planning workshops and stuff because the lost is what everybody wants to talk to. Right? The lost is like if you're really doing real, real evangelism, you're bringing good news to the lost. Man, I know people that haven't been in church in 30 years and need to be reminded how much Jesus loves them. Right? We've all got a brother, a sister, a cousin, a nephew, somebody who walked away from church because it wasn't good news for them anymore. Right? Either there was trauma or it ceased to be relevant or just the way it was dealt with was not good news in our life. We need to re-evangelize, re I guess, for a better term, right? I don't like this term, the lost. I think what we're doing is we're trying to find people that we can give an invitation to, right? But we, have, we know this, only the church can deal with the scope of the Great Commission. It's not one person. It's us collectively and collaboratively doing this together. In the church, there are many parts and many people who can study, who can teach, who can preach, who can baptize, and many who will just be along for the long haul of relationship because that's what evangelism is too. Saying, hey, I'm willing to be in your life, and I hope that our orbits point us both a little closer to Jesus. Therefore, the Great Commission is great because all can participate in it, and we have to be involved, right? Whether it's giving or whether it's planting churches, or whether it's, you know, growing small groups, or whether it's serving the church in one capacity or another. We all need to do it because there's an expectation. And, and the expectation is kind of made clear to us in Romans 15. And I know, like most of us don't read Romans 15, because Romans 1 through 8 is this like really heavy lift theologically. And so by the time we get done studying Romans 1 through 8, we're like, okay, I'm done with Paul for a while. Like, I don't need it. So we never go back and read Romans 15. Well, Romans 15 is pretty interesting because Paul makes a claim in Romans 15, which is both ridiculous and interesting, right? It says this, they were convinced by the power of miraculous signs and wonders by the power of God's spirit. In this way, and this is the phrase, he says, I have fully presented the good news of Christ from Jerusalem all the way to this place. I can't say it. I've tried 
and it's embarrassing. So to that place, illusionism. Right, let me just say this, they're not close to each other, all right? So Paul makes a pretty crazy statement. Paul says, I've evangelized everybody. I have presented the gospel, fully presented the gospel to all these people. Well, first of all, no, he didn't. Because there's no way he could have met every single village, every single town. There's no way he could have done that. So you know the way that he did it, the why he's claiming this? He's claiming it because Paul planted churches where he would go. And he would plant churches in very strategic areas, in big cities that then, right, they were in, they're in these strategic places where they could have the most impact. But then the churches accepted responsibility for their areas, right, which is a parish model, right? They were, they were community churches. We're, we're not so good at that as Seventh-day Adventists. You know that. We go past like nine churches to go to the one Adventist church we want to go to. Right? We'll go 45 minutes away. We'll go an hour and a half away to go to the one Adventist church that we want to go to. We don't plant community churches. Uh, there's very few Adventist churches that I know of that are just the Adventist community church. And the community is like, we love them. We're part of them. We don't do that. But that's okay, right? I think we could get better at it, but we don't do that. But, but the churches that Paul was planting accepted a responsibility for the areas that we're in. And then the local church mobilized to plant more churches. Right? They knew that they needed to multiply. They knew that they needed to grow. They knew that they needed to expand the kingdom by going into all the world, which may have been the block next door, and continued to plant and grow churches, right? Because they needed more churches. If we are growing, we will always need more local churches. You know what day I can't wait for? I can't wait for the day when Crosswalk Redlands becomes a grandparent. What I mean by that is, when one of our churches that we've dottered off daughters off another church, when that day happens, we know that we are multiplying the kingdom and people are getting it, that we belong to a church growth planting movement, right, that believes in not only evangelism, but believes in the, the role that the local church has to play in evangelizing the world, right? That's what I think is really important. There's one last reason why I think the Great Commission is great. The Great Commission is great because it comes with the promise of God's enduring presence. What does it say at the very end in verse 20? It says, and lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. If you're reading the King James Version, you get to say lo, right? It says, I am with you always to the end of the age. It means that, it means that God is with us in our going. It means that as you talk to your neighbor that you've gotten to know over the last 20 years, and like, yeah, yeah, something's missing in my life. Da, 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 da. Rather than you saying, oh, yeah, I know how you feel. You say, you know, I'd love to invite you to come to church with me. Right? Have a cup of coffee, come to church. God is with you in that conversation and that invitation. It means as you start a small group in your home, um, and I may be talking to people that are online here that are watching right now. As you start a small group in your home and you never plan to start a small group, know that God is with you and you're going. Or as your small group has grown to 30, 40 people and now you've got to go talk to the conference about planting a church and you never planned on planting a church, that was not something God had ever put on your heart or you ever thought you'd be doing, you need to know that God is with you and you're going. Or even something as simple as when you go out to eat after this service and that 
server seems like they need just an extra little portion of grace. And so you make that tip from 15 to 25% because the Holy Spirit prompts you to know that God is with you and you're going. The Great Commission is even greater for me as I see someone participate in it, knowing that God is with you. The Great Commission finds its greatness in bringing great glory to a great God through the work of God's people. And this is what we're trying to do with Crosswalk. Take this seriously, that we should go into all the world knowing that one of us can't do it, that we can only do it collaboratively and together, knowing that we have to build churches, build communities of belonging so more and more people can be blessed and more and more people can connect with the good news of who Jesus is in a good and healthy place, recognizing that God is with us in our going, which means we'll take big swings and do really silly things things that people don't believe are safe or even should have permission to do in our systems. But we serve a really big God. So why would we do just a little for him? Why wouldn't we take big swings and take big risks? Because God has taken a risk on us, which may be the biggest risk of all. You know, maybe it all falls apart. Maybe what we're trying to do here through Crosswalk all falls apart tomorrow. And the churches that we planted become their own churches and different branding. We've still made strides for the kingdom. Maybe the legacy will be they tried and it didn't work out. But I gotta tell you, I'm not willing to end my calling. I'm not willing to spend the last 15 years of my career in church doing almost what God asked me to do. And looking at this room and going, yeah, we did it. It's pretty good. It's pretty full. Look what we did. Yay, us. As great as it is. I believe God has called us to so incredibly much more. Big things for a big God. And the truth is a great God calls great people to great things. And you are great people. You are people that God has called, anointed, and given authority to go give invitations to others, to plant churches in your homes, to grow the kingdom of God, to change the world a person at a time, to let people know how good God is for you and to you and how good he can be for them and to them as well. We don't wait for somebody to come into town and put up a big tent and do a meeting. We do it every single day. Every single day when we invite, when we love and love well, every moment we call that our evangelism and our invitation. So go into all the world, yeah. But all the world starts right outside those doors. And while it extends well past our borders and our our oceans and into other continents. It's also across the street. It's how you park. It's how you tip. It's how you love. And the invitation that you can give because of the way that you behave in a world that is so, so incredibly divided and angry towards one another. And you have an opportunity to bring love and peace and joy and hope into that world. So that's what we do.
And that's what God has called us to. Let's pray over that calling today. Lord of grace, I just thank you. You make this huge ask. You call it the Great Commission. It's a lot. But Lord, you didn't say, go do it. I'm going to grade you on it. You said, go do Go to it. I give you the authority to make it happen. And I'm going to be with you the whole time. And in fact, we learn throughout the rest of Scripture that you're actually going to go ahead of us and make the way clear for us. So, Lord, may we not live our lives in a way that says we almost did what you asked us to do. May we live in a way that we end our lives worn and tattered for the gospel. And we simply hear these words, well done, my good and faithful servant. You went the distance. You went all the way. You left nothing to chance. It was worth taking a risk on you because God risks on us every single day. Lord, thank you for that. May we be those people. In your name I pray, amen. Stand and worship with us one more time.